and welcome to the latest Funds Fan Podcast. I am Sam Benstead, the Deputy Collectors Editor. With my normal co-host Carl Caldwell away in sunny Mauritius on honeymoon, I have instead Richard Hunter with me, the Head of Markets at Interactive Investor. Hi Sam, good to be here. Great to have you Richard. So coming up later on the podcast is an interview with Chris Corpan, Manager of the JP Morgan Natural Resources Fund. Investing in oil and mining stocks it's been one of the top funds so far this year as natural resources prices have shot up. But with commodity prices cooling down as investors turn their attention to a coming recession, the outlook for the sector is much less certain. Chris talks about where resources prices could go next and why a commodities supercycle of rising prices is possible. But first, myself and Richard will chat through the biggest news items affecting fund investors at the moment. One thing that's caught my attention is valuations of private companies lagging those in public markets. This means that some investment trusts are dangerously close to their private stocks limit, including Bailey Gifford's Scottish Mortgage with 29% in private stocks versus a 30% limit, Edinburgh Worldwide at 37% versus a 50% cap, and Fidelity China Special Situations at 14.6% versus a 15% cap. They are allowed to breach their limits as the cat is set at the time of investment, but it means that they can't add any more money to private stocks without board approval. This may become an issue if they do not have enough money to support private portfolio companies when they raise more or they see an opportunity that they want to invest in. Another big story at the moment for investors is how companies are holding up under high inflation. We have just passed the first half of the year. So Richard, can you talk about what we might see as companies report their Q2 and H1 earnings? Well, it's set against um, some fairly low expectations, not surprisingly. We know what the markets have been doing so far this year. The FTSE 100 has held up relatively well um, compared to its US counterparts. If you look at the main indices in the States, you've got the Dow Jones down around 15%, S&P 500 down about 20%, NASDAQ about down about 28%. So that's a, a sign of how investors are feeling in terms of the current situation with the Federal Reserve remaining committed to raising interest rates with the inflation squarely in target, even if that risks tipping uh, the US economy into a recession. So what we've now got, and we always say this on a quarterly basis, that um, the results that are coming through are important, but in terms of this quarter, they are especially important. Not only will we have an opportunity to hear from companies on how they've been faring over the last three months, but equally importantly, uh, we'll be looking very closely at any outlook comments or indeed guidance that they're making. As I say, expectations are fairly low, certainly compared to this time last year and indeed to the first quarter. You'd probably expect some strength from the energy stocks. Um, But of course, the rest will very much be driven by what's actually been happening. For example, as we've seen in the UK as well, retail stocks have been under pressure, not not, uh, surprisingly, given the um, additional um, impact that the inflationary environment is having. That being said, of late, and we're talking the last few days, there's been something of a drop uh, in commodity prices in general and oil in particular and that's led to some uh, slivers of optimism feeding through to the US market in as much as should inflation have peaked and we won't know this for a short while yet that could release some consumer spending and of course the consumer in the states accounts for around 70% of their economic growth so that's a that's a vitally important uh, cog within the economy 
So it's uh, very much a question of battening down. Expectations are fairly low, which can be a good thing. Um, but as I say, in terms of the upcoming reporting season, it's a question of not just looking at what has happened for the last three months, but how companies see the next three months panning out. Another interesting development in the world of investment trusts was that dividends hit a record of $5.5 billion in the year to the 31st of March, up 15% on the previous year. Investment trusts buying listed stocks held payouts flat at about $2 billion, but the big story was that alternative investment store payouts jumped 25%, to around three and a half billion pounds. The biggest increase in this booming alternative sector came from venture capital trusts, which handed out about 500 million between April 2021 and March 2022, up 65%. Meanwhile, renewable energy infrastructure trusts paid their shareholders 580 million, up about 40%. And along with property, which is the largest dividend paying sector in the alternative segment, these categories accounted for four-fifths of the overall increase in dividends in the 12 months to the end of March this year. In contrast, in 2010, alternative categories of investment trusts contributed less than a third of dividends paid by the sector overall. In 2021, they contributed two-thirds. Their payouts were nine times larger in 2021 than in 2010, according to Link Group. Richard, can you talk about why alternative trust sectors are so good at generating income? Well, generally speaking, one of the things they look for um, is those areas of the market where the income is inverted commerce almost guaranteed. So that, that may be rental income, even despite the ravages of the pandemic. So in some ways, they're kind of uncorrelated to other asset classes. And you could probably describe those incomes as being income linked incomes. And obviously, we know what advantages investment trusts enjoy anyway, when it comes to uh, dividend payments. They're also looking to seek out some of the perhaps underappreciated market corners. There are a number of investors out there trying to do exactly the same. Um, but that's not to say that all of them are performing well. Growth Capital Trust, Chrysalis, for example, um, has been in the news this week for all the wrong reasons. It, it was heralded originally as a growth capital trust by the Association of Investment Companies, buying fledgling companies that could make it big, such as buy now, pay later firm Klarna and digital bank Starling. At the start of 2020, the shares uh, rose from around £1.20 to a peak of £2.70 as investors rushed to own this slice of the future. Interest rates near zero. There was no opportunity cost owning the riskier parts of the market. This increase in net asset value of 57% in the year to September 21 triggered a performance fee of £112 million with around half of that shared between Chrysalis fund managers who work for Jupiter Asset Management, Nick Williamson and Richard Watts. However, with interest rates now rising rapidly, safe government bond yields offer attractive return. This has sucked the life out of growth stocks with little by the way of profits. The Chrysalis share price has plummeted from £2.70 to 94p, a drop of 66%, and it now has a market cap of just £600 million. It's sad that investors paid a large performance fee in the interim, equivalent to an ongoing charge of almost 11%, according to the AIC, when times were good. But obviously, they're now suffering, having us seen the fact that markets have shifted. It really is shocking, isn't it? And shows how chasing high returns rarely works. No asset class can be on top indefinitely. One that has been suffering recently, but now could offer good value, is the bond sector, though. 
I wrote in a comment this week that economic woes mean bonds are finally worth investing in. Weighing up rising interest rates, slowing economic growth and high inflation, somewhat of a perfect storm for fixed income, investors have been dumping bonds. Yields, which move inversely to price, have therefore shot up. US government bonds with a 10-year maturity date now yield about 3%. This is six times higher than their yield in the summer of 2020. In the UK, 10-year gilts are at about 2%, which is 20 times higher than summer 2020, which was their low point. This means that corporate bond yields and how much they return over safe government bonds, known as the spread, have also risen. Investors can now get about 4% yield annually from the safest corporate credits, known as investment grade, while high yield or junk bonds yield about double that. This means that bond prices have fallen in tandem with stock prices this year, rather than providing protective buffer in difficult markets. For UK investors, this means a 12% drop in the value of the typical bond fund. However, the intensity of the bond market sell-off, even before interest rates have risen much, means that there could be some value there for investors. If inflation comes down next year, as it is likely to do due to the quality price drop that we are now seeing, then locking in a 4% yield from a company that's deemed quite safe by the market could be a savvy move. Richard, can you comment on what this means for 60-40 equity to bond for portfolios? Yeah, of course, the idea being that um, you are kind of hedged um, regardless of which direction the market is moving in. What we've seen, unfortunately, this year, as you mentioned, is that bonds and stocks have fallen in tandem, which is uh, something of a blow uh, to this strategy. Um, More bonds has meant worse returns rather than better returns during market difficulty. That's not to say that the strategy um, is yet one that is completely defunct. Um, the sell-off in bonds means, as again, as you've mentioned, that they currently yield more. So that income will bolster returns uh, for a mixed portfolio and on a total return basis. In addition to that, who's to know that the selling may have gone too far with the investors pricing in too much inflation and too many interest rate hikes? Were central banks to turn more dovish because they want to avoid a recession, uh, pausing further rate hikes or even cutting them if uh, we are pushed into those recessionary times, bond prices could fall again, providing investors with capital returns. And finally, of course, if central banks are now willing to raise interest rates following more than a decade of stubbornly low rates, uh, low rates then cycles of rising and falling interest rates as economies ebb and flow will also return. This means that bonds could suffer when the economy and indeed the stock market is healthy as central banks should be raising rates. But when the economy slows and stocks falls, then central banks will be willing to step in and cut rates, which is good for bonds. The uncoupling of the stock and bond markets should serve investors well in the future. Today, our guest on the Funds Fan podcast is Chris Corpen, co-manager of the £950 million JP Morgan Natural Resources Fund. The fund invests globally in companies involved in raw materials, such as oil and mining stocks. This year, performance has been very strong, returning around 16% as raw material prices have risen. Over five years, the fund has made investors close to 70%. Chris has been in charge since 2017. Chris, thank you for coming on to the podcast. Thank you, Sam, and, and also uh, thank you to your listeners for, you, for their time. Chris, could you give us a bit of background on the fund? Where do you invest and how do you pick stocks? 
that this fund is is invested in the natural resources sector in oil and gas and and now becoming also some some clean energy investments and also in the mining sector so that would be um companies that are mining iron ore or base metals such as copper aluminium and we also have an allocation to gold and precious in the fund we we have a global remit um and you know so currently we're investing a lot of capital in in north america uh europe and and mostly australia with with some african exposure and do you ever delve into riskier parts of the natural resources sector places like latin america or eastern europe where there could be greater political risk as well as uh, risk about finding the right commodities in the ground um yes we can and and some of our investments do have assets that are located in for example south america south america is very important for the copper market for example with approximately a third of copper production is is coming from peru and chile it's been a good start to the year for the funds and natural resources more generally what has been behind the rise in resource prices and how long can they keep rising for i think that's the the tip of everyone's tongue or for investors um maybe i'll take it in in two parts if i may um the first part would be uh covid and the economic recovery and and the second part would be the outlook um for the cycle for commodities so if we if we take the first part covid obviously 2020 a, a challenging time for many um we did see for for some commodities a, a generational collapse in demand and of course fears in oversupply for commodities uh so for example oil demand fell approximately 20% and of course the economic cycle has recovered globally and demand rates have been quite strong and that's led to quite a strong demand pull for for commodities such as oil and and also metals that we invest in and the the, the recovery has been so good that um you know prices have appreciated also as inventories have drawn so a, a strong economic recovery post covid would would be why returns have been good over the past year um and the second part would really be related to investment trends that we've seen in the industry over the past decade um you know mining for example investments in mining have have fallen over the past or, or peaked in 2012 2013 and then also for oil and gas um you know investments really peaked in in 2014 so we we've, we've seen reduced investment levels in in commodities um over the past of uh, the later part of last decade and and that continues to be the case and why are we seeing a lack of investment into new oil wells into new mines and how much of the high prices today can we attribute to that lack of investment i, th- I think it's uh, on on the rising prices i i think it's quite difficult to say um the demand strength post covid lockdowns i think would be the biggest contributor to that and the impact of of lower investment and and why it's been like that is because the industry had poor returns over the 2010 to 2015 period for for the mining sector and and really just until recently the energy sector has had poor bottom line returns as well and you know lower investment typically means lower supply in the future 
And at the same time, managements are, are very focused on, on corporate returns and also distributing um, additional shareholder returns in, in the form of dividends and buybacks, and it also improving their financial condition or, or reducing their, their net debt levels. So with this lack of investment, but presumably continued demand for raw materials, particularly oil at the moment, do you think this sets up a new super cycle in commodity prices? I think, I think time will tell. Um, within longer term cycles, there are obviously many cycles that, that one has to think about, but we're, we're long term investors. It, it, it's possible that due to the reduced investment levels that um, you know, it'll always be cyclical, but as a result, maybe the, the lows are, are higher than they were in, in the last decade. You mentioned cyclicality there, and we've had a taste of that over the past month or so, with resource prices crashing a bit as investors have turned their attention to a recession risk and what that might mean for global trade. So what do you, wait, what do you make of that sudden drop? Um, so I think, I think the market obviously is... is talking or thinking about a, a possible recession. During recessionary environments, demand growth rates uh, weaken, and typically that, that leads to lower commodity demand, and, and usually as a result, uh, prices will, will ease as a result. Um, you know, as an active manager in, in the space, our, our role is really to find the companies that can survive um, through the cycle and diligently invest their capital in, in new projects um, and also distribute a, re- a return to, to shareholders also. And in your portfolio, what is the split then between mining and oil companies or you know different types of, of minerals? Where are you finding the best opportunities at the moment? So in, in the portfolio, um, we, we talk about a, approximately a 50% split between energy and mining. I think areas that we are enthusiastic about would be um, base metals, which are required for the energy transition, uh, and also conventional energy also because of the, the reduced investment we've seen. Um, I, think, I think we're quite lucky. We, we've got a, a global network of analysts so we can select the best opportunities um, and ensure that the, the fund is correctly positioned for, for clients also. Which are those winning base metals then from the transition to renewable energy? I think the, the energy transition will, will take a long time. Um, and base metals w- would be the, the biggest beneficiary for, from the energy transition. So, for example, um, an electric vehicle, obviously the battery has, has lithium. Uh, some have nickel, manganese. Um, and you know, an electric vehicle is, is four to five times more copper intensive than an internal combustion engine car. And although maybe the quantities of 60 to 80 kilograms don't, don't sound a lot, if you were to replace all of the internal combustion engines in the world um, with, with electrification, that, that's quite a significant demand pull for, for copper. Um, but really, that will be um, you know, as the penetration of electric vehicles come through, that, that really starts to happen, in our opinion, post-2025. Your top stock is Shell, and you also have BHP and Rio Tinto in the top 10. That's according to your latest May fact sheet. But North America is by far the biggest part of the portfolio at about 
So why is a global reach so important when investing in the natural resources sector? So, you know, commodities are, are, are truly um, a, a global business uh, with demand from all regions of the world. Often where the company is listed doesn't necessarily mean that that is where their operations are. And so, you know, with our, with our global analyst network that, that covers all jurisdictions from the Americas, MENA and Asia Pacific, um, we're able to find the best opportunities for, for shareholders. But yes, the, the UK market does offer some opportunities, but we, we also uh, are able to reach globally. Are you generally looking to own big stocks in the portfolio or do you also own smaller companies that might be a bit more speculative? So those ones looking to find new oil reserves or find new mineral deposits. And how do you balance that risk in the portfolio between large and Small stocks. Currently, the focus is is mainly on uh, cash flowing companies, uh, given the opportunity set, um, and many of those also have uh, development pipelines for for future growth uh, in a capital efficient way. And um, you know, we 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 do strike a a, a, a balance in the fund um, across commodities and, and across market cap spectrum. You mentioned cash flow there. And it's been an amazing past 12 months or so for mining and oil stocks as they've returned a lot of money to shareholders because of high prices. Do you think they can continue to return money to investors at a similar rate or have we already seen the boom come and go? I think that, you know, it is a cyclical industry and payouts, um, not for all companies, but they will be variable in, in nature. I think I am reassured on the financial health of the companies, for example, the reduction of of net debt um, that we've seen over the past decade uh, to be able to continue um, shareholder distributions. But but they will be volatile as as the the, or cyclical as as it is for, for this sector. It is a cyclical sector. After the big run-up this year in the valuations of mining and oil companies, how expensive do you think they are? And what types of metrics are you looking at to assess whether you invest in a company or not? You know, you know, Sam, we, we really look at quality of the asset base. Um, in our valuation, we, we have a long-term valuation metrics where we, we calculate expected returns for the stocks that we own. And we disaggregate that expected return into what earnings growth um, we expect from the company, also what uh, dividend um, we're expecting, and, and, and of course, what we're prepared to pay for, which is based off the valuation, which is based off the, the corporate return profile that the, that the company themselves are making. Um, whether to discern if, if they're expensive or inexpensive is is. Um, maybe not for me to say, um, but we have a rigorous process in identifying the best stocks for the portfolio. And is there a sell discipline in that? Um, so if there are spikes in share prices, do you, um, do you trim accordingly and reinvest into other parts of the market? Um, that's correct. If, if our expected return singles become uh, lower, we, we will reallocate capital to areas with higher expected return. But we we do expect to be invested in in both sectors, both mining and energy, uh, and do have a balanced approach between the two. The shift to renewable energy 
is looking great for some of the miners in the portfolio. So companies that are taking lithium, copper, nickel out the ground and then selling it to um, electric car companies, for example. Do you see this 50-50 split in the portfolio between mining and oil stocks changing in the future? Or are you equally happy with the outlook for oil companies at the moment? I think I think um, it, it could be too early to say oil and gas and is still critical to the global economy, and we need oil and gas to be affordable and able to achieve the energy transition. Um, so, for example, mining still requires um, a, a lot of of diesel to to mine the rock and and of course produce the metals that are used in in clean energy. Um, I think it's too early to say, but but time will tell. And where do you stand on gold? Do you invest in any gold miners? And what's your outlook for the gold price at the moment as we see um, very high inflation, but also rising interest rates? Uh, you're, you're right about highlighting rising rates. Typically, that is a, a headwind for gold. Um, gold has been relatively stable, I think, because of of inflation that we're currently seeing in the market. Uh, It's very difficult to forecast. It is a financial instrument, of course, produced by industrial methods and therefore does act as an inflationary hedge. And where we're invested is in in stocks with which we view a higher quality within the sector um, and and a strong expected return outlook. How much of the portfolio is invested in gold at the moment? And do you try and keep that allocation relatively consistent? I think I think it, it ebbs and flows. Um, you know, often gold does uh, perform well in, in uh, inflationary environments and also deflationary environments. Um, our allocation in gold at the moment is in the teens. Um, I, I don't have it exactly in front of me at the moment, um, but it is it is quite uh, a, a stable allocation. Um, and, you know, it is a diversifier in, in the portfolio also. Another thing that's very hard to predict is the oil price. It's so dependent on factors that are impossible to predict. So the current thing affecting it is obviously the, the war in Ukraine. So how do you forecast the oil price and do you and how do you factor this into your models? And does this all influence that 50% allocation to energy stocks? Our, our approach to commodity investing and, and long-term forecasts is, is uh, quite conservative. Um, for many of the commodities that we're investing in, we're, we're looking for cost curve support or incentive pricing levels to bring on new uh, investments. And, um, you know, obviously in, in the shorter term, there, there is a quite a, uh, some volatility. Um, but I, I'm reassured that the majority of the companies that we're investing in are also using low commodity price assumptions to make their investments decisions also. Have you got a forecast for the oil price? And are you factoring that into your models about how much money energy companies are going to make? And are you able to reveal what that target price is? Uh, we, we don't disclose our external forecasts, but um, you know, you, it, it wouldn't be too far off what the futures curve would be forecasting five years out from now, which is significantly lower 
than than current spot prices that we're observing in in the market, and and that would be the level that is required to bring on um, marginal cost of supply uh, for the oil market. Do you consider environmental, social, and governance ESG factors when investing, and how does that play out when buying fossil fuel companies? So our our, our role as an active manager is is really to engage with the companies. We we do have frameworks to identify improvers or, or companies that are also laggards. And you know, prior to working in in the financial industry, I, I worked at uh, in industry, and and I'm very aware of of the benefits and also the drawbacks that the industry can bring. Um, and you know, decarbonization is at the forefront of everyone's minds uh, when investing in this sector, and also for the the companies themselves. Finally, the question we ask all of our interviewees: Are you personally invested in your fund? Uh, yes, part of part of my compensation is is through investments in the fund, and I've also invested additional of my own capital in, into the fund also. Chris, that's all we have time for on the podcast, but thank you very much for coming on. Thank you, Sam, and, and um, thank you to your listeners also. That's all we have time for. We'll be back with another episode of the Funds Fan podcast in two weeks' time. In the meantime, you can check out all the latest news and research on our website at ii.co.uk. Thanks for listening.